Well, our Sea Camp children have sung to us about that's the kind of God he is and telling us so many beautiful things about who God is and how that can change our lives when we really know he's present in our lives. And that really brings us, I mean, the song that they did brings us right into the heart of the message today. We're going to think about one of the parts of who God is that uh, church people and God's people throughout history have thought about have loved, sometimes have been challenged to figure out how to apply the times of our lives, but I'll tell you what it is. It is that God declares to us that a part of who he is is that he is Jehovah Jireh. You know what it means? We usually translate it, it's that God provides. Uh, the Hebrew is just so, so beautiful. It, it could be translated, he sees, or it could be translated, he sees to it. But when you really put it together, what what it's saying is the God who made the universe and has no limitations at all sees when his people have deep, deep needs. And he sees to it that provisions are made available so that those needs can be met. It's not saying that he gives us everything we want. It is saying that when we face these times, when, when it just seems like there is a deep, deep need, that God is there. And that part of his identity, his name, is that I am Jehovah Jireh. I see what you're going through. And I will provide what you need so that you continue on in this journey until my work is complete. Now, that's what we're going to think about today. That's worth thinking about, don't you think? A lot of thinks in there. Um, And one of the great texts that teach us about this is Exodus chapter 16. Uh, the text that Candace and Claire have just read for us. It's that time when God's people had been rescued from slavery, and then they were in the desert. And they kept hitting these times of incredible needs. And one of the times they just didn't know where they were going to get enough food. And so God, Jehovah Jireh, he said, I'm going to show them who I am, my name. A part of my name is I provide, I'm going to show them that I care about my people when they're hurting. And he sent Manna. They'd never seen anything like it. The word manna just means, what is it? What is this stuff? And they found it was something far better than anything they could ever have imagined. Now, now, you know, when they had needs, they were like us. And they grumbled and complained. And sometimes they didn't have enough faith. But God continued to be who he is. And he provided and he said, it's because I am who I am. I am there with you, and I am the God who provides. So today, that's what we're going to uh, think about. And we're going to ask two simple questions. I thought about how you put this message together. And I thought the first question that so many times we have is, why is it that when God walks with us, that we still have these times when we desperately feel like we need help? We need him to provide. And then second, when you look at this manna story god provided but they had to go out and get it they had a responsibility so uh, how do we get it so those are going to be the two questions i want us to think about today uh, why we need provision i mean why do we get into those messes where it just seems to be impossible and number two if god is there and he provides how do you and i go out and get what he provides you want to think about that We're going to, no matter whether you want to or not. I didn't prepare anything else. But 
This is just a part of what it means to live through this life with him. And you'll see it. Number one, why is it? Sometimes we hit these hard places like the Israelites did when we desperately need God to be there and to provide. And as I've thought about it and looked at this text, I can see a couple of reasons. And number one is simply this, that we in this imperfect world, we find ourselves sometimes in places where we cannot go it alone. Yes, sometimes we're in those places because God has specifically led us there for a reason. But when we are there as they were, we find ourselves in a very hard place. So here they were in a desert. And I'll just tell you, a desert is not an easy place for human life to survive. That's, that's how Exodus 15 through 17 keeps describing it. They had gotten out of Egypt, which is this beautiful country. Those of you from Egypt, you know that. It was known as a, a place of life and of flourishing. And, and they had gotten out, and now they were in a desert. And repeatedly, in chapter 15, 16, and 17, just the basic things to survive, they found that we didn't have, they didn't have good water. And then they didn't think they had enough food. And then they didn't have enough water at all. And God kept finding a way to provide. And, and actually, even though they grumbled about it and should have had more faith, when we read their grumbles, we can see they make sense. I can see myself, I hate to tell you this, I can see myself grumbling like this. Uh, chapter 16, verse 3, Moses, you have brought us out from Egypt into this desert to starve this entire assembly to death. What are we doing? I, I can see us when we don't have enough food saying that. Or next week we're going to see in chapter 17, verse 3. Moses, why did you bring us up out of Egypt where there was plenty of water to bring us here so that we, our children, and our livestock will all die of thirst? Now, when we think about it, in the 21st century, it might be a little bit hard for us to, to walk in these shoes because we, because of the development of technology, and a lot of it probably over at Caltech and other places, <laughs> Uh, have found ways to adapt our environment so that people today can live pretty well in the desert. You know that's true, don't you? We Southern Californians know that. If you don't know that, drive out to the desert. Go to Palm Springs and Palm Desert and Indian Wells. Seems like some people live pretty well there, at least in the eyes of the world, right? But not back in the ancient Near East. Back in the ancient Near East, where God had led them, and he had led them. Moses keeps saying this. It was really a hard place to live. And what they needed was, if they were going to follow God and they were going to walk through a hard place, they needed God to be there. They needed him to provide something that that desert didn't have. Now, I've been thinking about us throughout the Bible. I'll show it to you at the end of the message that repeatedly it talks about this wilderness experience being much like our spiritual lives. So I started thinking about us here in Southern California. And you're with me, right? I think that God has put us in a place that, even though it's absolutely beautiful here in Southern California, it's beautiful. I think it might be particularly difficult for our spiritual lives to thrive and survive. Do you agree with me? I think there are things happening in our culture and in our society. I think it's always hard to put God at the center of our lives in this imperfect world. But I think God has put us in a place and planted this church in a place where it's particularly difficult for people just to thrive by putting God at the center of their lives. And I, I think there are a couple of reasons for that. Uh, one of them is the Bible keeps telling us that, that the uh, very beginning point for most sin is when we put ourselves into the place of God. 
Genesis 3, that's really where it started. I know better than God. We put ourselves in the place of God. So here we are in a society in which it seems to me almost all of the messages of our culture are telling us to live lives that are self-focused. And then I keep coming back here on a Sunday and say, we've got to put God at the center of our lives. We're not going to really live unless we, we say, Lord, I want to honor and please you by everything I do. And then you go out and everything in the world around us tells us, no, 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 no. That, that's not how you live. You've got to do something for yourself. And, uh, the, and, and we see it in the advertising, we see it in the media, all the entertainment. It, it's all pushing us in that direction. And I think it makes it hard for us to come to church and the pastor says one thing, but the rest of culture keeps telling us, no, 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 it's not God-centered living or other-centered living. It's do something for yourself. And it even makes its way into our thinking at church. I talked about this two weeks ago. So the church is to be a worship service where we bring the praise and honor to God, but it's so subtle the way we turn it around. I don't think I feel like I worship today. It becomes about me. Oh, that that church, well, it looks like they do some things for children, but I don't think it really does anything for me. If you're children, I don't think it does anything for adults or or for for children. You know, we can always turn it into a self-centered thing. I think it becomes very hard for us to live the kind of lives which God says, this is the way I've made you to live. Uh, with me in my rightful place at the center of everything. Do you agree with me? Anybody feel any tugs with that? Uh, The other thing that I think makes it hard here in Southern California is that the Bible keeps encouraging us. It says, now, the way that you're really going to live is that you need to have faithfulness in your relationships. You need to have purity in the way you think, the things you fill your mind with. You need to have self-control instead of just getting out of control. And yet the messages we get in our society is, no, no, that's not real life. Unfaithfulness in relationships, especially in sexual areas. Uh, impurity in the kind of things you put into your mind. That's where the real living is found. Out of control living. Have you seen some of the movies? Uh, Hangover. One, two, three, four. How many are there? Bridesmaid, you don't know. I'm glad you don't know. But all of them are, are advocating an out-of-control kind of living, that that's how true living is. And you get into that and you find out, no, no, that traps me. But all I'm, I'm saying is this, that just as the uh, people of God, though God had a plan for them, were led through a place where it was hard for their physical lives to survive. It seems to me right now we need to face the fact that if God says the real way to live is to have me at the center of your life, that God has put us for his reasons, into a place where that's, that's not easy. We need God to be Jehovah Jireh and provide for us. Now, the second reason why I think we uh, need God to be Jehovah Jireh is that it's not just the world around us. It's not just the influence of the culture that we're not to be conformed to, but also what happens is we start engaging in ways of life in which, and I put it, that our character, our human character, begins to be trapped we begin to be trapped in ways of life that if we're going to be freed from them and be different from the world around us, we need God to help us and to set us free. Look at chapter 16, verse 3. Some of you who are psychologists and therapists have been talking to you about this all week. The Israelites uh, said to Moses and Aaron, oh, if only we had died by the Lord's hand in Egypt, because back there we sat around pots of meat and ate all the food we wanted, but look where you brought us. I pointed out that this is almost certainly not true. They didn't even have enough straw to make bricks. Pharaoh wasn't out there making the best stew possible. 
getting the best meat. I'm going to go to Taylor's meat shop. It's the best meat. That's what our, the Israelites have to have. He wasn't doing that, you know. And yet, as so many of you have helped me to see, what we find here is what we call the language of addiction. The language of addiction. That you know that the life that you used to be in is a life that traps you. And yet, when you get away, I've got to be freed from that. Yet you get away from it, and somehow you only remember what this might have been. Or maybe I didn't quite experience enough of that. And you want to go back to it. That's the way it was for them. They wanted to be set free. That was not a good life. They had no future. Their children had no future. Many of them were being killed. Yet when they're away, well, maybe it really is back there. Oh, we've got to get back to that when the first temptation or struggle comes. Doesn't it sound like uh, drug addiction or alcohol addiction? When you're in it, you just know this is no way to live. Got to be set free. And yet when you get away and the temptation comes, you think, well, maybe one more time. Or maybe it really is back there, and I just didn't experience the very best of things. So you see, it's, it's one thing to get people out of slavery. It's another thing to get the slavery out of them, out of us. Does that make sense to you? Well, Tim Keller said it better than I do, so I'll show you what he said. He said, you can get people out of a prison in an instant, but you cannot get what imprisons out of people except through an ongoing process. See, you and I develop patterns of life that are influenced by the world, our own flesh, and the devil. And so God says, I'll set you free. I'll I'll declare your past forgiven, and you're made right with me. But that leads us into a process, and it is a process, of, 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 of being set free and living lives that are complete. And it takes sometimes wilderness training. It takes wilderness training. And I'll tell you why. Because God has a goal for us. And his goal is not just transportation. It's transformation. He he wasn't just having a goal to get them out of Egypt and send them with people who didn't even know him and didn't trust him and didn't obey him into the promised land. He wanted to transform them. And in the same way, when we come to him, his goal is not just to, to, okay, they believed in me. Now they can continue to be people who live for themselves until they get to heaven. No, no, no. He's into transformation. And I'll tell you, for that to happen, we need God's help. Anybody want to say amen? (laughs) We need God's help. I'll just try to illustrate this for you. I I really am not meddling in case you feel like I'm talking to you, about you. Maybe I am. Let's suppose you grew up in a home where you had no affirmation at all. You just feel like what's demanded always is perfection, just constant success. From childhood on, you just feel this constant pressure. You can't come in second. You've always got to be first. And as you get older, it just continues on. You've got to be the most successful musician. You've got to be the most successful. The Olympic Games. You've got to be the the best athlete. Not a bronze. It's got to be a gold. Uh, Then you've got to get the best profession. Uh, You've got to be a doctor. Uh, you've got to be an attorney, but also a lead partner in that firm. So you, you grow up with that constant pressure. And what happens, of course, is that your whole way of thinking about yourself and about the world is shaped by that, by that, by that context that you've grown up in. Uh, you never feel satisfied with anything you do because it's not perfect. Uh, you never are able to have really any joy in what you're doing. You feel shame. 
Because you know you're falling short of, of, of what is perfect. And, and usually you have a difficulty in maintaining lasting relationships. Uh, because there are parts of yourself you just don't want to open up. But what happens too is it's not just what shapes you in, in that context. It's also the way of life we get into in the midst of that. To try to feign, pretend protection, we uh, cheat on tests. And especially, we, we develop a way of life that we hide things. We hide things because we don't want people to see our failure. See, so it's, it's both uh, the world that, that's shaping us into its values as well as a pattern of life that we get into that's hard to break. And then one day, you show up on a Sunday morning and Pastor Waybright preaches a sermon about Jesus. And he declares to you that God knows everything about you, including all those places where you have fallen short and where you're not perfect. And he loves you with an everlasting love in spite of it. And he says, I found a way to forgive anything where you've fallen short. And what has happened is it's not your perfection because none of us are perfect. What, what has happened is that Jesus has lived the perfect life. And, and I put it this way, and I think it also is what I heard from Tim Keller once. Only one person lived the life we should have lived, but none of us has the, the perfect life. But that same person was willing to die the death we should have to die because of our sins, but we don't have to. Because the Bible says that it's by God's grace we haven't earned it, that we are rescued It's received just through faith in Jesus. That's not of yourselves. Not a matter of boasting. He says you are freed. And the theological term is justified. I know it's theological. I love it. I don't know if you love it. It just means you're declared right with God. But I'll tell you that that can happen in an instant. But then what has to set in is what the other theological term, sanctification. And that is a long process. And for that process to happen, for us to become complete, all that God made us to be, we need God's provision. Because, you know, if you just come and say, okay, I believe in Jesus, you come forward, I ask you to do that, and you receive Jesus in your life, and you say, oh, good, it's his perfection, not mine. That's on Sunday. Then Monday, all of you can just affirm this with me. Monday you wake up and you never have another problem, right? Never feel any shame again. Think the way God does. Right? Yeah, never tempted again. I'm looking at our chair of the board. Not even he. No, no, no. You know it's not that way. The gospel is that God declares us right with him. Hallelujah. We're going to remember what it cost him to do that. But that God loves us so much that he gives himself to us. And until his work is done in us and he promises it will get done, he will be Jehovah Jireh. That's why we need him to be that. Because uh, we still have parts of our character that takes a process to redeem. Now, if that's true, and, and if it's true, too, that when God provided the manna, he said, you have to go out and get it. He didn't just zap them with it. You had to go out and get it in very specific ways. I think the same thing is true now. God makes provision for us to know that he's there, uh, to know how to think about the difficulties that come, to trust him when they come. But we have to know how to go out and get it. So how do we go out and get it? So this will be your pastor giving you advice about going and getting manna. Ready? Number one, I think we have to learn to go to God's word regularly, both to shape our thinking with God at the center 
as well as to guide our decisions. The reason why I wanted Claire and Candace to read not only Exodus 16, but also Deuteronomy chapter 8, is because uh, Moses took this manna incident, and then he said it has a spiritual significance to it. And at the end of his life, he looked back again. Just before they were to get into the promised land and he couldn't go, he looked back again at Deuteronomy chapter 8, and he said this is the meaning of that. Listen again to his words. Moses said, Remember how the Lord, your God, led you all the way in the wilderness these 40 years. He humbled you, yes, causing you to hunger, needing him, and then feeding you with manna. Why? Notice it. To teach you that man does not live on bread alone. But we live on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Those of you who go to church, did you know that this is the context for that verse that we often just rip right out of there? He's saying, yes, God gave them physical bread for their physical hunger, but it really had a much deeper spiritual significance. That manna is given so that they would know who I am and that I am here, that I am Jehovah Jireh. That manna is given so that every day they would go out and know that I am there, that I provide, that I love them, that I won't give up on them. Our life comes when we live on that truth and learn to walk with God and learn to trust God. And so now we, too, have been given this truth of God that's been put in this word. Brothers and sisters, I think you and I have to learn. If, if we're going to live in this spiritual wasteland that God has put us in to represent him wherever he sends us, we've got to be people who daily know how to go in and hear what God has to say. We need it for the same reasons they did. We need to, to look at this world and, and know what does this world look like when God is the one who made it, who loves me, he is my father, when he is the God he reveals himself to be, and he's with me. We've got to keep coming back and finding out what he says about himself so that our thinking can be reshaped. So that we can help see when things happen that we cannot understand. That that, that happened all the time. Even when Jesus was on the cross, it made no sense to his mother. No sense whatsoever. And yet he had a great reason for it. That we look at that and say, there's things happening in this world and in my life that make no sense. God says, turn your face to me. I'm there. It makes no sense. It looks awful. I mean, I looked again this week, and some of you, we have so many of you who, who come from Egypt. Remind me that again this week, the very authorities in Egypt, just outside Cairo, set fire to the Christians' homes. Our brothers and sisters being so heavily persecuted there and in other places. I'm sure in the midst of that, you just say, that makes no sense. And God comes back again and says, but I'm still there. And though you don't see it, you have to learn to trust me. You have to learn to trust me. I, I feel like for this to happen, because it's countercultural thinking, we have to do as the Israelites did and daily learn to go into this word. Hear it. Chew on it. Let it digest. How are you going to do that if you're new to this stuff? I'll give you a couple of recommendations. Maybe, maybe you'd like to buy a one-year Bible. Do, do I have? Yeah. Have you ever seen those? You know, you can even get those on, in electronic form now. Put it on your Kindle or your Nook or something like that. It's a very convenient way. Uh, and you can start tomorrow or even today. You don't have to start January 1st. Just start wherever it is and just start reading. And if you say it's too much, look at all this, read half of it and take two years. God, God will be happy with you. You can get it in a real book and carry it. You can get it electronically. Just do it and start reading and listening to it. And sometimes when you read, it's hard to understand. 
Dad, I really encourage you to find a version that you can read and understand. I like the New International Version. I like the English Standard Version, both of those. Find one that you can understand. You, I really like to have a basic study Bible. They're just, you don't have to have 10,000 books like your pastor does, sitting there telling about every little detail about Hebrew. It's just, and sometimes the hard questions that are there, they're addressed. So I, that's one way. Second thing you might want to do is to get a Bible reading plan app for your phone or your, or your iPad. And if you know how to buy apps, you know how to do that. And if you say, Pastor, I think my phone will do that, but I don't know how to do it. Just look for somebody in church who's younger than you, and they can tell you. I, I, I can already say that, right? Or a third way that I found to be so easy and so helpful, you can go online and go to a site I really like, BibleGateway.com. And you go on there, and I think you can see up, up in that upper left-hand corner of it, go down seven points, and you'll see a link that says Reading Plans. Then just follow that. It's just so easy. I, I want you to do this. Because you and I are walking through a wilderness spiritually in many ways. And we need to go out and get that manna. When we hear from God, we'll find he's there and that he provides. What else? A second. I also think that we have to make space in our lives to be with God. And just to be with God alone. And to do that daily. Do you know that Jesus took this manna experience and he applied it to us as well. It's in the Sermon on the Mount. And we know the one part of, it, of the prayer, the Lord's Prayer, where he prayed, give us today our daily bread. You know, he's referring back to this, that as they went through the wilderness and you gave them bread, give us today our daily bread. So what he's talking about is in the context of prayer, we often bring our need to provisions to God. But here's what I also want you to see. It is in the context of spending time with God regularly. He would say in that same thing, Matthew chapter 6, he would say, uh, begin with, when you pray. That's what he says, when. So Jesus is taking it for granted that you and I, every day, are going to be setting aside a, a place and a time just to be with him. And when we pray, Matt Barnes, who goes to our church, has said, we've got to stop thinking in Southern California about God being a cosmic vending machine. <laughs> That if we figure out how to do it, we'll drop the coins in and he has to give us what we want. No, no, no. God is Father. When you pray, pray this way, he says. Our Father in heaven, your name is holy. Hallowed be your name. You know. So we start with God as he is. And I think you and I, even though we can meet together in a setting like this with the Lord or in our small groups, if we're going to know that God is there and that he provides, we need to set aside a time and a place to be with him. Uh, one, one quick illustration, uh, again, to the world of therapy. Can you imagine, I'll, I'll speak to those who are married. If you're not, you can still understand this illustration. Can you imagine going to a marriage therapist and saying, you know, we've been going to a lot of counselors, but our relationship just seems to be so um, distant and a bit cold. We've been to a lot of therapists. We thought we'd come to you because you seem to be all younger or more innovative. or something. We need a new technique. Is there a pill we can take? Is there something that nobody's ever said to us before that we can do? And the therapist, if it's a good therapist, will say, well, just, let's, let's just, just wait for a minute. Um, let me ask you one basic question. Do the two of you uh, ever just spend time with one another on a regular basis? 
listening to one another and enjoying some things together. And can you imagine the couple getting, why do you have to bring that up? That old stuff. Every counselor we go to says something like that. Anybody can tell us that. We want something new. We want some new technique. Now, the good therapist will say, not back off and say, wait a minute. You spend time together. And if you say, no, we don't. When we get together, it's, it's always with our kids or, or always with friends. The therapist will say, well, go and spend some time together. Enjoy some things about life. Do some things together. And if you still feel distant, come back and see me in a month or two. See, that's what Jesus is saying. If you don't know God is present, when you pray, develop that discipline. And I think these two points are so important, both a time and a place. Young moms, where you have little kids at home, that finding a time and place where you're just with God alone, that's hard, isn't it? I've never been a young mom, so I don't know what to tell you to do except to tell God and he'll understand and look for those moments that you can simply to be with him. But you have to see he's our father. He's a person. So the principle that I've put down is this. We have to learn first to go to God as the one we need. And then in the context of that, we go to him for what we need. Does that make sense to you? A way of life in which we go to God and say, above anything else in this world, Lord, you're the one I need to be with. I need to know you're here. We go to him first, our Father in heaven, as the one we need. And when we're there, we'll find out how much he loves us. And we can bring him our needs for daily provision. Because he is, you'll find him to be Jehovah Jireh. Third, that you have to be faithfully and vitally connected to your church family. There is a text back in Exodus 16. I just love this. Verse 17. So they went out and did what God told them to do. Verse 17. Listen to it again. The Israelites did as they were told. And when they did, some gathered much and some gathered little. You can imagine that, can't you? Some were little. The kids, they had little hands. They couldn't get as much. Some had these huge hands, like an Andrew Bynum or somebody, huge hands and and gathered a lot. So they, they did that. And when they measured it by the omer, the one who gathered much did not have too much. The one who gathered little did not have too little. Everyone gathered just as much as he needed. This is what we call life in community. God brings us together, and I hope you see that here. I know we have a big space here, but he brings us into this church family together. And as we're going for truth together, we'll find out that we'll hear from the Lord with one another and and even from one another. One of the things that you'll find if, if you only come to a Sunday morning service is that together we need to be together like this. But often what I need to give are just the big principles that speak to all of life. But I, throughout my entire ministry, I've had people come and say, don't do that. All the biblical, Just tell us what to do with it. We're facing this issue and, and this. And what, what do I do about that? And I say, well, first of all, I don't know all the individual issues we have in a church this size. And if I tried to address just the individual issues that I know about, I'd have one sermon about plumbers and one about lawyers. Adam would have a lot about engineers. Engineers need a lot of, a lot of help. I'd have one for older people. One, no, no, no. We gather as a family. We look at the, at the big things our father has to say to all of us. And then we have to be in a smaller group, a community, uh, where we can wrestle with what that means to me. 
You can say, Pastor Greg talked about this this week, and this is what I'm facing. How does that apply? Somebody says, I see it this way. And you wrestle with that together, and you're able to apply it together. And we'll find that we have just enough. Because that's what, that's what God does. And then we can hold one another accountable, not only to hearing it, but also actually to living that way. So we've got to be able to find a community. And if you haven't found a smaller place in our church, see that sign, Connect? At the end of the service, I'm going to say, run through there. And say, you've got to help me to find a smaller group so that I can do life together with my brothers and sisters. Finally. I, I want, you can tell, I want us all to learn to walk with God. To know that he's not just here when you leave, he's with you. And I want you to learn to trust him. And I put it this way, I want you to learn to trust Jehovah Jireh. To be who he is, to provide. And he will do it often in unexpected ways. All right, so you're, you're setting aside time to hear his word, to get his truth. Setting aside time to be with him. We're doing life in community and still the issues are so hard. You come to the Lord and say, give us today our daily bread. Lord, it is hard. And I just want to tell you this. God knows. And Jesus talked about this in Revelation chapter 2, verse 17. He was talking to some of our brothers and sisters centuries ago who were being heavily persecuted and didn't understand it. Uh, And he told them, I know where you live. Remember, I did a whole sermon on this. I am there. I know what's going on. And at the end, he takes this manna story and he says, if you will be faithful, if you'll be overcome, walk with me in the midst of all of this, I will give to you some of the hidden manna. What he's talking about is, on one day, they didn't see, how is God going to do it this time? How is he going to provide? The next day it was there. In fact, I love the fact that manna just means, what is it? They didn't know what it was. It wasn't what they'd asked for. It wasn't what they expected. But it was better than what they could have asked for. It was sweet. It was nourishing. It was sustaining. Uh, Unexpected ways that that God breaks in. It's happened in so many ways in my life. Sometimes it happens I show up at church, I'm just really walking through a hard time, and sometimes some of you will say something to me. Uh, something like this, Pastor, that message last week, it was just God's, God's word to me for this week. And, and you'll tell me what it was, and I don't even remember saying that. But, but I'm encouraged. It's, it's just the word I needed to hear. Sometimes God sends somebody across our paths to bring us some of this hidden manna. Have you ever experienced that? Sometimes it's the sermon itself. You come in and and you didn't expect it. You didn't even want to come. And here you come and it's as if the whole thing was just for you. It's hidden manna. I think four years ago I I told you one of the very uh, vivid examples of this that happened uh, before Chris and I got married. I'll tell you again. It's worthy of being told again. Uh, I was a missionary in Germany. And neither Chris or I had anything much, did we? So finally we'd gotten engaged. And kind of organized, I was going to leave. You know, we got engaged in January, and I came back in July, and we got married in July. So I didn't have a lot of time to prepare and and get all the things ready for that. But after I had paid my school bill at Wheaton, uh, graduate school, after I had paid for my ticket to get back to the mission field and and settled all my debts and everything, uh, and bought the engagement ring that Chris still has, um, you remember, I had... uh, $1.37, $1.37, I remember the specific number, and a five-pound bag of spinach in the freezer. And I didn't even like spinach back then. And several more days before I was able to go. 
I, I, back, to, back to Germany. I um, didn't know what I was going to do. I, be, I you know, prayed about it and, and all these things. And I got this call from a good friend. And he said, you know, Ruth and I are going to be having dinner. We've made some extra food. Would you like to come over and have dinner with us? Would I like to come over and have dinner with you? I said, so I went over, and I'm sure I ate like a pig. I probably stuffed it in my pockets. I thought, how am I going to live for three days on just this, this kind of sustenance? And so they drove me back home after the meal. And as I got out of the car, they said, wait a minute, Greg. You know, for some reason, we just thought we should do this. And when we were at the store, we bought some things for you. So they opened up the trunk, and they brought me out two bags of groceries. I'm not saying that happens all the time. I don't have many more stories like that. I will tell you this. We've walked through some wildernesses, and we're still here. We're still here. Because God is who he is. He is Jehovah Jireh. And to show you how committed he is to that, we are going to go now to communion. And as we go to communion, I want to take you to the text where Jesus applied this manna story. By saying, yes, we'd have physical needs, but the deepest need of the human heart is our eternal need for forgiveness. And for knowing the presence of the holy God who loves us with an everlasting love. And he knew that no miracles in this world and no physical signs of manna could do that. So this is what Jesus said. It's just powerful words. He said, our ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. But Jesus said to them, truly, I tell you, it is not Moses who has given you the bread from heaven. It is my father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is the bread that comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And they said, sir, always give us this bread. And what did Jesus say? I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me talking about the deepest spiritual needs of our lives, who comes to me will never go hungry, who believes in me will never be thirsty. Then he takes that up again, down in verse 45. They will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard the Father and learned from him comes to me. No one has seen the Father except the one who is from God. Only he has seen the Father. Verse 47. So truly I tell you, The one who believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness, yet physically they died. But here is bread come down from heaven, which anyone may eat and not die. For I am the living bread that comes down from heaven. God knows our needs. How much does he love us? He loves us so much that he sent his one and only son. How much does he love us? He loves us so much that he gave his life. The perfect one for the imperfect. The sinless for the sin filled. So that we can be declared free. And begin a process in which we will truly, truly be free. And then Jesus would say. On that evening that he was betrayed. I I want you never to forget this. You need ongoing reminders. So when you gather as a church family, you do what we're going to be doing. Brothers and sisters, we're going to do what our brothers and sisters have done all over the world and throughout history. We're going to ask you, if you can, to come. We'll have to ask our stewards now to go to the tables.
If you cannot get to the tables, um, just raise your hands and our stewards will get the elements out to you. As you come, if you can do this, I'd like you to, to take the bread because Jesus first took the bread and broke it, said it's my body, it's given for you. Then take the cup, which he said, this is my blood poured out for you and take it back to your seat and then wait and we'll receive it all together. And if you're visiting, this is not the Lake Avenue church table. This is the Lord's table. So if your life has been given to the Lord, if it's your deepest desire to walk, to glorify him, to walk with him at the center of your life, come, come. For he is the bread of life for anyone who will receive him. Let me lead us in prayer. And then as you feel led, come and receive and go back.